This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. It's the morning shift. I'm Jen White. It's an unassuming bungalow on the city's southwest side. It looks like thousands of others in the neighborhood and across Chicago. But this one is unique for what's going on inside. The home serves as transitional housing for men from nearby neighborhoods who need to escape emergency situations, like if their life is in danger. Liz Dozier is the CEO of Chicago Beyond. That organization runs the home in partnership with the Inner City Muslim Action Network and Chicago CRED, which stands for Creating Real Economic Destiny. The three groups not only provide a safe space for at-risk young men, but also job training and holistic healing. And Liz Dozier explains how the idea for the house first came about. One of my all-time favorite students, uh, Jason Barrett, was shot and killed on March 20th of 2017. And he was gunned down at about 3 p.m. on that day. And I was helping his family get funeral arrangements and stuff together about a week or so after that. And we were at the funeral home getting ready to open the doors for, like, you know, other you know friends and stuff to come into the to the funeral and in walked another former student who happened to be his best friend and as he walked in I mean he just I mean obviously he was he was like physically devastated and we just started talking and I'd asked you know I just really was straight up with him like you know you're going to be next like there was a lot of things happening in the neighborhood and he was involved in, in some of this stuff as well and he's like, you know, I don't, I don't want to die. And, you know, we exchanged numbers. And then that next day we met up and we met up for a series of days after that. And, you know, I told him I would help him. I was like, you know, I have, you know, know enough people. We can figure out where you can go. And so we started looking around the city to find out where do, where do you go? Like if there's a current threat on your life, like, like a serious threat, not like where do you go? And we were kind of astounded to see there was really nowhere in the city that we could find um, and then we started looking along with Chicago Cred more nationally, like where is a national place? Where does this exist? And we couldn't find anything. And um, that's when we started working with Iman to like, let's well, we can just build it. You know, this is this is something that is a need, unfortunate because it's not normal, right? We shouldn't need this in our city, um, but we could build it, and that's how it all began. I wonder about the young men who come to you, and and it seems that. Moving into this space also means leaving behind probably relationships, mm-hmm. um, family members, people whose, whose safety you may be very concerned about mm-hmm. in your absence. Mm-hmm. How do you work with them around those concerns? Well, that's been one of the hardest parts is because essentially when the young men are extracted, 
right? They do leave behind exactly what you say. Maybe sons and daughters, definitely parents, sisters, siblings, brothers, all, all that. And what we found in this pilot phase is that oftentimes they want to go back. And going back, they're putting themselves in danger. Um, and they're also putting their families in danger. Um, and so what we've done in this next part of this phase is we've actually begun to open up uh, and build uh, a home. It's, a, it's in a pilot phase, but a home for families. And this all came about because uh, when we one young man actually uh, wanted to go back and see his family, understandable. And um, long story short, his... Uh, Brothers and sisters were being harassed by uh, gang members in the community. They had, you know, 11 and 12 years old, had gang guns held to their heads, and they were unsafe as well, right? And so the idea came about, and again, this is not normal. The idea came about, like, let's, what, what if we could build a home? Like, what if you can't, what if it's not just about that young one man, but what if the whole family essentially has to leave? How do you ensure the safety of the home. We're in a time when, you know, social media is rampant and and it's so easy to give away your location. It, it's just, it, it's so easy now. How do you make sure there are things in place that keep that space safe? We rely a lot on the young men who are there. They function as, as a cohort, and that's the idea behind this, the six of them in the home together. It's that they are a support for one another to navigate the opportunities at the safe house, but also to participate in one another's healing. Um, and so we rely on them for that, uh, as well as the wonderful folks at Iman. And that healing part is, a, is important to um, the services that Safe House provides. Talk about that piece. Yes, I think as we look at our own lives, we can really easily see how we're not siloed. We're not just, you know, a mother or a father or a worker at X organization. We have these interconnected parts. And so do the young men who we're talking about here. And so the holistic approach of which we've built the safe house is it's built from that same idea and same understanding that holistic healing is more than just a sum of its parts. It's just as a well-being for you as it is, like, as you think about it, it's just not about just not being sick, right? It's, it's about a physical space to lay your head in the sense that you belong. It's about job training and a community that understands the very realistic challenges. It's food, it's art, it's like all these things. And so uh, mental health and wellness is one of those things, right? It is about, you know, healing from some of the trauma that they have experienced as a result of the life that they previously led. And so there are uh, full-time counselors that work at Iman, and so the young men have a routine of seeing counselors and also participating in, in group therapy as well. Earlier this summer, I spoke with Shamar Hempel. He's the oh, Associate yeah. Director of uh, Strategy and Organizing at Iman about the Green Reentry Program, and here's what he had to say. What we were able to do was say, hey, listen, what, we, what if we took these brothers, took small cores of five to seven, trained them up in uh, electric carpentry, uh, and uh, HVAC and train them on site in class and, and begin to take over these spaces. What's unique about our programming is that all not only is this just a program for training and, and, and mentorship and education, but we're really developing these neighborhoods directly from the inside, right? So we're taking the people who live in the community that's being trained and actually reclaiming these spaces. And it takes a holistic effort a, a lot of times when you talk about these type of programs. I remember during that conversation, um, we talked about the importance of uh, creating hope uh, for the young men in the, in the green reentry program. And 
Can you speak to, to that piece, trying to help them find a path forward? Well, I think it's a similar as we think of our own lives, right? It is, you know, being able to see that there's, you know, something at the end of the tunnel. Like I have to go through this schooling or this whatever, but at the end, I can really be free. And as I look at the young man in particular who was best friends with Jason and I look at his life, I wonder if he's ever even had the opportunity to be free. I think about, you know, the community of which he came from and some of the educational opportunities that were not there. I think about um, just the disinvestment in community. And he's one of the smartest kids that I know. But I don't know if he's really had the chance to ever truly be free and to actualize his full potential. And what I love about what the Safe House is doing is it's providing those young men a light at the end of the tunnel to actually live a free and whole life, which is honestly what we what we all strive for, no matter if we live on the southwest side or if we're on the north side or we're living downtown, wherever we are. Everyone wants to be free. We want our children to be free to live their lives. When you think about what you want to do with this program, Um, In the years to come, you mentioned a home for families. Um, What else do you imagine as part of the safe house? So I just want to stress before I answer this question that this whole thing is not normal. Right, right. (laughs) You know, and I think that's just an important point to emphasize. People say this is a solution or this is this. "Eh, You know, I don't know about that, right? This is the fundamental thing we're doing right now is trying to protect people in their lives and give them a path forward. And this is really not normal. This should not be. Um, But in the meantime, as we um, work on violence here in our city, uh, we hope that this the Chicago Beyond's partnership with Iman uh, grows, that we can provide more spaces for young people to restart their lives, for families to be safe and to live healthy lives. And at a more fundamental level, growing our collective, collective ability to act dynamically and creatively as we think about what to do with violence in our city and how to create uh, those safe places for people. And one of the things Shamar said was, you know, in, in these interventions, it is neighborhood stabilization work mm-hmm. because you are strengthening individual citizens who then go back often into their neighborhoods and say, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, a, I'm gonna build a life here. I'm going to be a stable member of this community." And so it is about strengthening communities by strengthening individuals as well. Do you see the safe houses possibly? planting those seeds. I do, but I I think it's no different than any other community. If you look at communities, you know, it is always a collection of individuals and it is always about those individuals' strengths and how they are able to thrive and, and not just survive. That's Liz Dozier, CEO of Chicago Beyond. You can learn more about their work at chicagobeyond.org. Liz, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. If you've turned on any business or economic news this week, you've probably heard this term. Yield curve inversion. Are yield curves important for banks? Crazy inverted yield curve. Yield curve inversion. You don't need an inversion of the yield curve to have a recession. Now, if you've never heard of an inverted yield curve, you're not alone. But business journalist Heidi Moore has written an explainer, an economic explainer that's gone viral. The yield curve has to do with the bond market, and Moore says the bond market is a much better indicator of the economy than the market we hear about most, the stock market. 
So the bond market is about $100 trillion, and the stock market is a third of that. So even though we hear about the stock market every single day, it's literally the smallest part of the financial world. And you mentioned the stock market and the bond market. Just define the bond market side of things for us. Sure. Well, a bond is a way for a company or a government to borrow money from you or from another company or from another government. And you can think of it in the simplest term, like a bond is a promise, right? So it's a promise to pay somebody back at a certain day. And the way that it used to be done was just the way that you and I would decide whether somebody could borrow money from us, right? We would take their measure and we would find out, you know, can they pay us back? And that's basically what a bond is. It's just a paper. It's not really on paper anymore, but it's a security that says, we will pay you back uh, all of your money on a certain day. And until then, we're going to give you some interest. So in your Twitter thread, you call the stock market a literary device and the bond market more of an entire novel. Just explain how those two pieces fit together. Sure. So one of the interesting things about Wall Street is that people take on the personalities of the jobs that they have, right? So people who trade stocks, they talk fast, they move fast, they like to tell short stories. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this up? Is this down? Buy, sell, merge, right? And it's all very fast. So you only get a snapshot on any given day in the stock market. The most you can compare something to is how it did a year ago right? The 52-week high, it's called. And so it's a very short-term way of thinking. The bond market is thinking much more long-term because, of course, if you're going to pay somebody back, it's usually over years, right? It's just like a mortgage or something like that. So you have to know a lot about uh, the person you're borrowing from. And you have to know a whole story of a company. How has it uh, paid people back in the past? Uh, you know, what is its credit rating? Um, how good is it at its business? All of those things go into play in the bond market, and they create a much richer, fuller story. The disappointing part about that is that most of us don't participate in the bond market. Sometimes we buy treasury bonds, of course, through our 401ks. But it's really for big, big investors, right? So, uh, you know, companies like Fidelity that do mass investing on behalf of people or governments like China or the U.S. or giant companies like General Electric. So you and I don't get a lot of exposure to the bond market, but it's such a, a richer story about how the economy and uh, corporate America is doing. And, uh, you know, we would do well to learn more about it. It's a lot of fun, actually. Which brings us to this term we've heard get thrown around quite a bit this week. Just explain what this actually is. Since we've just talked about what the bond market is, it's important to understand what the treasury bond market is, right? So the U.S. government can raise money in two ways. One is to tax us, which we all pay taxes, hopefully, most of us. Um, And the other way is to sell bonds, which are called treasury bonds. And treasury bonds are a way for the government to borrow money from us or from companies or from other governments, right? So the largest holder of treasury bonds right now, I believe, is Japan, followed by China. And so the government issues the treasury bonds. And when people buy them, it's basically saying that they have faith in the U.S. government to pay them back over several different durations of time. Okay, so you can buy a three-month treasury bill, uh, which says, okay, I trust the U.S. government to pay me back in three months with all of my money and some good interest. You can buy it for two years. You can buy it for 10 years. You can buy it for 30 years. So 
when you buy a 10-year or a 30-year treasury bond, you're saying, I think things are going to be great with the U.S. in 10 years. I think it's going to pay me back all of my money. I think it's going to be in a great position. Inflation isn't going to be so high. And the U.S. economy is going to do great, right? You have a long-term faith in the U.S. government. When you buy a shorter-term bond, your treasury bond, you're basically saying the same thing, but you're limiting it to two years or so, right? You're saying, okay, maybe in two years it'll be okay. I don't really know about 10 years. That's the major difference. You're just deciding your own window for your faith in lending money to the U.S. government. So higher risk by taking out that 10-year treasury bond, but a higher reward. So this week, Something happened that caused uh, this inverted yield curve. Explain that. Again, it's a matter of faith and taking someone's measure, right? So when you lend money to the U.S. government for 10 years, it's saying, you know what? That's a long time for you to lock up your money, right? And so the yield is usually pretty appealing. The prices are lower. So there are two things to think about with a treasury bond. There's the price and there's the yield. The yield is basically the interest rate. So when you buy something for 10 years, you get a a pretty good uh, interest rate on it, right? Because you're locking up your money for a long time. Um, And so when you're buying it for two years, you're getting less of a great interest rate usually. But what's happened is that just in the past couple of days, it's happened briefly three times this year. That has gone upside down, right? So you can get a better deal by buying a 10-year treasury bond, looking ahead 10 years from now, then you can buying a two-year, which means that people aren't so optimistic about what's going to happen with the U.S. two years from now. They're a lot more optimistic about what's going to happen 10 years from now. And put this into context for us. How often does an inverted yield curve point to a possible recession? So there's a running joke in the markets uh, because the inverted yield curve is a pretty strong sign of recession. It's usually predicted five, all five of the past uh, five recessions. But there is a joke because sometimes it inverts and then it writes itself again, right? So uh, the running gag in the markets is that the inverted yield curve has predicted nine of the last five recessions, right? Mm-hmm. That it's maybe you can jump on it a little too quickly. The way that you test whether it really means something is whether it stays inverted. So we just saw it inverted for like a few minutes the other day. And that's happened twice this year. It's also happened with a shorter duration treasury bond, the uh, treasury bill, the three month. That's been inverted basically since March. But you really have to see it sustained for a long time to believe it as a real sign of a recession because there are other economic indicators. How long is a long time? Uh, Well, you know, usually you want to see it for about a quarter. Uh, which is about three months or so. It just has to keep happening, right, with some frequency to be able to take it seriously because a recession is a big thing, right? It's an economy-wide phenomenon, right? Like you have to look at jobs and you have to look at um, whether uh, companies are producing the way that they used to produce. And there are all these other factors. So the inverted yield curve is one factor, but what's given it so much weight is that it has been a really reliable factor since 1956. Historically, when we've seen this sustained inverted yield curve, how long would it take the recession to actually materialize? Some people say it can be as little as seven months, and some people say as long as 24. Generally, the which is about two years, uh, generally the range is about 14 to 24 months. So we're hearing economists say that the country could be heading 
towards recession. What's your read of where we are right now? I think it's a really interesting time to take a look at the U.S. economy because an actual recession is a very formal economic term that require, that says that the U.S. has been experiencing a slow growth for a certain amount of time, right, a very specific amount of time. We don't have that evidence yet, but I think if you look at some of the other kinds of evidence, we have been seeing more of a slowdown than you would expect. So, for instance, unemployment numbers have not been very strong, right? People are having trouble finding jobs, in other words. Another thing that I personally look at, because my history is covering corporate America and Wall Street, is that you've seen mass layoffs at really big companies ever since late last year. So Apple did thousands of layoffs. I believe IBM did. And there was a whole cluster of those earlier this year. So that can't be good, right? I mean, something may not be catastrophic, but it's not great. And so when you see companies doing layoffs like that, it means they're under some kind of financial pressure. Um, Of course, there is the discussion of a trade war and tension around tariffs. That affects how much companies uh, make in terms of their profits, which of course also determines how they hire people and uh, how they manufacture goods, which all contributes to the health of the United States, what we call the GDP, the gross domestic product. And so all of those factors kind of come into play. I guess the key question a lot of people often have is, is a recession always prompted by a financial crisis, right, which is a a little bit different. So we can have a recession without necessarily having the markets fall apart and bailouts and everything that we had in 2008. So you don't need like one specific event or crash to cause a recession. It's more of a a slow rolling crash. So for people who are watching the news or looking at their 401k plan and feeling a little uneasy or panicked, what would you say to them? The main thing is really to try to avoid panic and to try to think clearly. I mean, if you do buy into the reasoning that the yield curve is giving us a warning, then you want to think very carefully about what your goals are for the next two years, right? So one thing financial advisors always say is don't pull money out of your 401k, you know, don't make any sudden panicky moves, right? Um, Always over time investments gather money. They might go up and down, but over time they gather money. So don't panic, but do plan out, uh, you know, financial advisors say have said this to me and, and I'm sharing it in the hope that it would help somebody else. Plan out what your next two to three years would look like, how much you should have probably a financial cushion if you can gather one. You should, um, you know, know about how secure your job is or if you have some kind of fallback income that might be helpful. Um, you should think through different scenarios, right? Like how are you going to pay your mortgage? How are you going to afford your car loan? All of that is going to come into play. And if you wait until the last minute to think through your financial situation, a scary as it is, it'll get scarier under time pressure. That's business journalist Heidi Moore. You can follow her on Twitter at M-O-O-R-E-H-N. Heidi, thanks for that explainer. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that's your Sunday morning shift. Tell your friends about us. They can subscribe on iTunes or wherever they get their podcasts. I'm Jen White. Have a great rest of your weekend and let's talk again soon.
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.